Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you open them to Psalm chapter 1? Psalm chapter 1. The title of this sermon is Two Ways to Live. Psalm chapter 1, Two Ways to Live. Well, this story is definitely going to date me, but I remember growing up and watching television shows and in between the Price is Right or whatever it was that I was watching, uh, there was this commercial and it seemed like they played it like a hundred times per hour. It was this lady asking the question, do you want to make more money? Then with no pause, she'd answer, Sure, we all do. You guys remember that commercial? A couple of you? It was a no-brainer to answer to a pretty straightforward question. Well, today, I'm going to ask a similar question. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to live a blessed, happy life? Sure, we all do. Well then, I have just the psalm for us. Psalm chapter 1. As the first chapter of the Psalter, Psalm 1 is considered the gateway to the Psalms. It's been called the title page for the Christian songbook. Charles Spurgeon calls it, in some respects, the text upon which the whole of the Psalms make up a divine sermon. And here it is. In Psalm 1, there are two distinct ways to live the way of the blessed, righteous man, or the way of the wicked. There's no third way. There's only two. So I'll ask again, do you want to live a blessed life? Let's dive into our text. Psalm 1, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff, that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Look with me at verse 1. The psalmist starts with the phrase, Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. And I want to go a bit backwards here and start with the word man. This isn't about gender. But what it is about is a representative placeholder for mankind. Again, there are two ways for mankind to live. And here is the first. The blessed man. The blessed man. This word blessed is the Hebrew word asher, which means supremely happy or fulfilled. And in the case of Psalm 1, 
This word is actually in the plural. What this means is that this model of living doesn't just lead to a one-time blessing. It's a life of, or a multiplicity of blessing. But before we continue on, I want to make sure I clarify one more thing. Let's make sure that, that we really understand what this word blessed means. Being happy or being blessed in Scripture isn't about a feeling. It's a gift that God gives his children. Consider just a couple of examples. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God blesses them with life. He blesses them with a bountiful garden home full of the choicest fruit. He blesses them with each other. It's all a gift. Then they sin and rebel against God. Yes, there are curses that come as a result of their sin. Yet, what do we see in Genesis 3.15? God blesses them with a promise of redemption from that evil serpent. Then, he blesses them even more with adequate clothes that cover them properly. All gifts, all blessings from God, all grace. We could see the same thing in the lives of Abraham or David and many others throughout the Old and New Testaments. Here's what I want us to know and understand. Outside of God's blessing, mankind is cursed. And according to Ecclesiastes 1, life is meaningless. Blessedness is not a feeling. I love what one commentator says here. He says, even when the righteous do not feel happy, they are still considered blessed from God's perspective. He bestows this gift on them. Neither negative feelings nor adverse conditions can take this blessing away. That's exactly right. So, what does this blessed life look like? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Isn't that interesting? He starts out by giving us a string of negatives. And sometimes this is the best way to go, to use a negative to paint a picture of a positive outcome. Wet paint, don't sit here. Hot stove, don't touch. High voltage, do not enter. That's a bit of what the psalmist is doing here. He's saying the way of blessedness doesn't look like this. Don't do this. So what does he say? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. A blessed man, a godly man or woman, takes wiser counsel. He doesn't seek wisdom from the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. When you read this, think, stands with. We see all kinds of signs and even bumper stickers that say things like, I stand with so-and-so, meaning I'm their advocate. I'm for them. I'm on their side. Third, 
nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Think resting in, taking a firm seat, making yourself comfortable in. Sitting it even carries with it the tone of teaching others or leading others. We use this language all the time, right? We say that someone chairs a meeting or holds the such-and-such chair of the department at a school. Do you notice how these verbs work here in our first verse? They seem to be progressively worse. Walks, stands, sits. Spurgeon comments that when men are living in sin, they go from bad to worse. At first, they merely walk in the counsel of the careless and ungodly who forget God. The evil is rather practical than habitual. But after that, they become habituated to evil, and they stand in the way of open sinners who willfully violate God's commandments. And if, let alone, they go one step further and become themselves pestilent teachers and tempters of others, and thus they sit in the seat of the scornful. This is not, this is not, this is not the way of the blessed man. We know what a godly man is not. But what is a godly man? Look at verse 2. Now the positive side. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. This is the key verse of the entire psalm, and it's why I chose this text for today. As we celebrate five years of Santa Cruz Baptist, I want this to be loud and clear. This is my hope for. This is my prayer for. This is my desire for us as a church that we'll be 100% built on, that our delight will be in God's word. That we're not more focused on relevance or, or innovation or even the culture, but we're deeply committed to and joyously satisfied by God's word. That we let God's word, not our own opinions, desires, feelings, and preferences, decide what and how we do things as a church. And as individuals. Look at this verse again. Verse 1. This is what the godly blessed man isn't. Verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. What does this mean? Well, first, the law of the Lord. James Boyce comments that the word law is used to refer to the whole of God's inscripturated revelation. We are really learning not about human beings or nature primarily, which is what the other disciplines teach us, but about God. I love that. The law of the Lord is God's revelation of himself. So why do we delight in God's word? Why do we delight in God's word? Because that's where we come to know God himself. We don't love God's word so that we can be smarter than everyone else at Bible trivia. 
We don't love God's word so that we can be critical of everyone else. We don't love God's word so that we can be glorified as scholars. We love God's word because that's where we come to know God. Further, even the act of delighting in the law of the Lord is a gracious gift. Think about this. Without God giving us the new birth, or God giving us a new heart, we would never delight in God's word. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Romans chapter 8, verse 7, he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. But here's what God does. He, he takes the mind that is set on the flesh, he takes our heart of stone, and he makes it new. He regenerates us, which is totally undeserved on our part. And we have a taste to know God. We have a desire for God's law, where we know him. And on his law, he meditates day and night. On his law, he meditates day and night. So is this just for pastors and scholars, Drew? You know, the types of people that study God's word all the time, day and night? No. This is for you. This is what the psalmist is saying here. He's saying the godly blessed man or woman brings God's word into every single situation that they face. Big problems and mundane daily agendas. God's instruction is always on the mind and on the heart. I want us to remember that this is poetry. Mike Abendroth taught you about that this summer, didn't he? The psalmist says on his law, he meditates day and night the whole spectrum, isn't it? The godly man or woman is bringing God's word into everything. Now, in order to do that, there's something that's implied, isn't there? For the godly man or woman to meditate on God's law day and night, or to bring God's word into everything, they have to know God's word. They have to, as Psalm 119.11 says, store up God's word in their hearts. Friends, unfortunately, this doesn't happen by osmosis. Man, I wish it did. I wish that I, I wish that we could just sleep with our heads on our Bibles and in the morning, we just have it. Wouldn't that be great? But that's not how God's designed it. He knows better than us. We hide God's word in our hearts by being saturated in it, by sitting under the word preached like we're doing right now, by reading the word consistently and carefully and prayerfully, by studying God's word deeply, and by memorizing it. Do we understand how this leads to a blessed life, even when we don't feel blessed? And even when things aren't going our way. If I'm bringing God's words to bear on every situation, 
I can be going through grief or even deep, deep suffering and be reminded of the truth that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I can be reminded that God has and does use suffering to sanctify us and to grow us more into his image. I can be reminded that the storms of life often cause me to cling to Jesus even more, which is a blessed place to be. On the other side, when things are going well, I can be joyful and thankful because I'm reminded that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. In both cases, on mountains or in valleys, I can know that God is sovereign over all things and that he's good. Right here, in God's word, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's shown us a path to walk on that leads to a blessed life. Delight in God's word. Meditate on it day and night. So, there's two paths to choose from. Two ways to live. Now, there's two results based on these two paths. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. First, speaking of the blessed man, verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Look at this. Again, using poetry, the psalmist gives us two similes to teach us core truths. We might assume that the psalmist would say, living a godly life or following the godly path will lead to reward. And even though that may be true, that's not what he says. Instead, he says, the result of living a godly life, the result of being the blessed man or woman is that you'll be a particular type of person. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. First, let's recognize that the tree is planted. Again, Spurgeon so helpfully notes that this is not a wild tree, but a tree planted, chosen, considered as property, cultivated, and secured from the last terrible uprooting. And then he quotes Matthew 15, 13, which says, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. This tree is planted. It's intentionally there by God. Further, it's been intentionally planted where? By streams of water. The image is one of constant and abundant nourishment from the word of God. That tree might be in a dry and dusty land, but it's planted by streams of water. How much do we need to be reminded of that this morning in Santa Cruz, California? We live in a dry land where the word of God is not honored. We live in a culture that despises God and even mocks him. We live in an area of the country 
where the percentage of Christians is pretty minimal. It's dry and dusty. But we've got God's word. We've got God's grace and mercy and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're planted by streams of water. Praise God for that. We're, we're rooted with all the sustenance and nourishment that we need. And look at this. He, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. This tree, this, this blessed person is both fruitful and stable or enduring. Does your fruit, or does your tree have fruit on it? Does your tree have fruit on it? What Christian fruit do you see on your tree? See Jesus' words to us on this in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. John chapter 15, 1 through 8. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. That's sobering and humbling. We'll never bear fruit apart from the vine, Jesus. Abiding in him. Any fruit that, that's in our lives is because of him. And if you're looking at your life and you don't see fruit, the answer isn't just try harder, is it? It's abide in Jesus. Or maybe it's trust in Jesus for the first time today. Allow him to plant you and to cultivate you into a tree that produces sweet fruit. Now, I'll explain more of how to do that in just a moment. But back in Psalm 1, I love this imagery of a fruitful tree. Does a fruit tree exist for itself? Does a fruit tree exist for itself? I mean, think about this. Have you ever seen an apple tree just out there in the field munching on its own apples? Of course not. It's ridiculous. The fruit is produced to be picked and eaten by others. If you're a Christian and there is fruit on your limbs, God has planted you and cultivated you and produced fruit in you for others 
You're blessed to be a blessing. And aren't fruitful people great to be around? They nourish everyone around them. You walk away from them fed and satisfied. That's what God desires for us to be as a church. So, the result, the, the first result of the life of blessedness is fruitfulness and abundance. But the blessed man or woman also endures. Look at this. And its leaf does not wither. Get this image in your mind. You look out onto the plain. It's been a hot summer. You don't have to imagine that. Maybe it's been a cold winter. It's been stormy spring with gale force winds. Other trees have been busted up, uprooted, or are already long gone. Got that image in your mind? Think about that. But then there's this tree, and it's still rooted. It's still got fruit on it and leaves that haven't withered. It's endured. That's the picture the psalmist wants us to have here. The Christian life isn't void of storms. Those are going to happen. You will have trials in this life. You will experience suffering. But God will be faithful. You will endure to the end. Why? Because you're intentionally planted next to streams of water. God's word is nourishing you. Your roots are deep, regardless of what's going on around you. The blessed man or woman is fruitful, and they endure. And there's one more line. In all that he does, he prospers. Really? Come on, Joel Osteen, don't, don't give me the prosperity gospel this morning. All that he does, he prospers? What's the psalmist saying here? That, that if you follow God, if you walk this path, you'll be healthy and wealthy? No. While God does tend to bless the things that he approves of, and he definitely approves of the blessed man's path, that's not really the point here. In fact, we know that in this world, lots of times, the righteous experience affliction. And the wicked seem to prosper. What's up with that? Psalm 73 is so helpful here. Psalm 73, verses 12 through 17. It says, Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I will have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. So he's asking the same question that we are. God, I'm looking around, and the wicked are prospering. I don't seem to be prospering. I don't understand. Then look at what he says in verse 17. 
until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. I think that's the psalmist's point here in Psalm 1. In the end, the way of the righteous prospers. He wins. Think about a football game. Does every play that a team runs work? No. Sometimes the quarterback gets sacked. Sometimes he throws an interception. But still wins the game. The blessed man may get sacked sometimes. Things will be hard. Not everything will work out the way that he hoped. But he will prosper in the end. And I think that's abundantly clear that that's the psalmist's point when we see the contrast in verse 4. So, the blessed man or woman produces fruit, they endure, and in the end they will prosper eternally. Now look at the contrast. The other way to live, the way of the wicked. Verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The image here is of a grain harvest. What would happen is that the wheat would be brought in to what's called a threshing floor, where animals and different tools would smash up the wheat. Then this material would be picked up and just thrown into the air. The weightless chaff would fly away in the wind, be burned even, and the heavier grain would fall back to the threshing floor and gathered for food. This is the image given for the life of the wicked. It's chaff that's blown away in the wind. It's not rooted. It's not useful or fruitful. It's blown away. It's here and it's gone. So, we have two roads and two results. And finally, we see in the text two different destinations. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here's the truth. At the end of days, there will be a final judgment. The blessed will enter the congregation of the righteous, and the wicked won't be able to stand. They'll be justly thrown into eternal darkness and torment and hell. There are two and only two eternal destinations for your soul. Now here's the catch. The only people who will enter into the congregation of the righteous are those who this psalm describes perfectly. Those who have never walked in the counsel of the wicked and never stood in the way of sinners and those who have never sat in the seat of scoffers. I would ask if that describes any of us, but one of us might foolishly raise our hands. <laughs> no, that, that, that's actually none of us, myself included. There's, there's only been one truly blessed man in the history of the universe. And his name is Jesus. 
He never walked in the counsel of the wicked or stood in the way of sinners or sat in the seat of scoffers. He lived perfectly in every single way. He always delighted in God's law. And he did that for us. If you're not a Christian, tune in for this part. Jesus obeyed God in every single way. He was perfectly righteous. And yet they killed him on a cross. What's up with that? Well, from the time of the Garden of Eden forward, every single one of us is a sinner. We've cosmically rebelled against God both by nature and by deed. And the just penalty for that sin is death. But here's the good news. God sent his only son, Jesus, to die in our place, to pay the just penalty that we owe. Our debt was wiped away. But it's even better than that. Not only were our debts wiped away, our accounts were credited to overflowing with Jesus' righteousness. That blessed obedience that, that Jesus lived out perfectly and fully becomes ours when we repent and believe, when we turn and when we trust in Christ. Because Jesus was and is the perfect blessed man of Psalm 1, we can be too. We invite you today to make that decision to turn from sin and to follow Christ. He wants to plant you by streams of water. He wants to make you fruitful and durable and eternally prosperous. We'd love to talk more with you about that after the service if you're interested. Finally, and in closing, if you're here and you are a Christian today, rest in this truth. God has planted you intentionally. You're fruitful because God has graciously made you so. You will stand in the congregation of the righteous because of Christ. You're blessed. Let's pray.